Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you not from the pop-up Chinese studio in Beijing, but from across the Pacific Ocean in San Francisco this week. I am Kaiser Guo, joined, I'm delighted to say, live and in person by the man behind DanWade.com, a man who puts his pants on two legs at a time, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> How are you, man? It's good I'm to fine. see you. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing very well. Yeah. Nice to see you yeah, in the Bay, the Bay era. Just let me B A Y. Let's slap fists so that. All right, so that was me, you know, high five and Jeremy, so that you know, you know that we're actually both here in the studio. Uh, great fortune has put us both in the Bay Area at this time. Jeremy is a speaking gig later today uh, with our other guest, and I've been here for a couple of weeks now, um, and I'll be here for a couple more. Working from Baidu's Sunnyvale office, which I have to tell you is just ridiculously comfy and has actually inspired me to new heights of productivity. So we are joined today by Eric Fish, who, like Jeremy, is another former denizen of Beijing, who listeners to our show will certainly remember. Eric is now writing for the Asia Society, along with Dan Washburn, also a former guest on the show, living in an Upper East Side shoebox or closet. I'm not sure which <laughs> I hear. Great to see you, Eric. Man, how Great are you? to see you again. <laughs> the stars aligned. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> So the last time, and thank you, you know, he's contributed his podcasting gear so that we can do this comfortably in his hotel room on, on Bush Street here. Uh, Eric, last time the three of us were recording together, I think we were with Andy Jacobs from the New York Times talking about Xia Ye Liang and the whole kerfuffle about him having been fired. Uh, you had been spending a lot of time on Chinese college campuses and, and among young people wherever they were to be found. And of course, what you were doing was gathering material for your new book, which just came out when? Uh, last month. Just last month. Yeah. Wow. China's Millennials, The Want Generation. So first of all, congrats on the birth of this baby. And on the very positive reviews that I've seen so far, I hear it's selling like hotcakes, too, despite <laughs> the ridiculous price. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, and what I want to do tell, about that. I want to tell listeners that we we have in our. Do you mean about selling like hotcakes or the price? <laughs> Either one. <laughs> Not to discourage anyone from listening to the rest of the show, but we do have a signed copy of Eric's book, which we will give away to a cynical listener, the one who. Oh God, I need to think of some some qualification, right? Uh, how about somebody who gives us the best top five list of favorite Seneca episodes over our last five year run? best five-year list send it to Seneca at popupchinese.com and uh yeah we, we will we'll, we'll sort through them and and um and award some lucky person an autographed version of china's millennials the lot generation by eric fish so let's let's dive in and start talking about this book yeah let's do it Sounds let's good. do it all right <laughs> i i think we should just start at the subtitle what what does that mean yeah, the one generation what, what does the one generation mean yeah so it's kind of purposely uh, ambiguous it can go both ways i think one of the big stereotypes about this generation uh, as seen in the uh, title little emperors uh, that this generation has become famous for is that it's a very entitled generation a uh, very selfish generation uh, but what i found also is something that i think it's quite a challenge to that in that uh, young people being a bit more empowered than in the past and wanting more out of life in a positive way, maybe, than in the past. And, you know, that, that, that observation, well, first, I, I, I absolutely agree, first. And, and second, that's all the exact two words that Mary Kay Magstad, who, of course, uh, used to, to be correspondent for PRI in, in, in Beijing, uh, she said the same things, entitled... Uh, as 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 much entitled as empowered, right? Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I mean, this is a generation that grew up uh, mid China's huge economic boom, like in the '90s, early 2000s, when like that was the pinnacle of China's economic development. So, coming up of age during that time, of course, they grew up much more comfortable than earlier generations. Uh, but I think the effects kind of cut both ways. Like they're demanding more than their parents' generation. Uh, whether that's negative or positive, I guess is in the eye of the beholder. Right, right, right. So it's not just material avarice, greed, sure. and stuff. That's not what want just means here. But it's also wanting more out of life hmm. um, in terms of uh, educational aspiration, in terms of, of of a career, in terms of spiritual fulfillment. Right, too, just right? very diverse too. I think. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's draw some parameters around this actual demographic that you're talking about. Uh, what are the objective criteria, the characteristics to find who they are, what's the age range? I mean, are these the all sort of the one-child generation people, so beginning 
with people born in, in, in the 80s? or is So the, just the markers I set for the book were people born between 1984 and 1996. Okay. Uh, that's okay. just kind of how it worked out. But yeah, late post-80s, early post-90s. Okay, okay. That's, that's yeah, good. It's, yeah, it's, the millennials term is a, a, an English word. It's not a Chinese term. But yeah, because Chinese do tend to be categorized as post-80s, post-90s, much narrower definitions. R- r- right. Is, is that what you were thinking of when you were working on it as post-80s, post-90s? Is that how you sort of saw it in your own head? Yeah. I mean, those definitions, too, are not entirely don't entirely capture. Well, I mean, it is all marketing bullshit, I mean, in a way, <laughs> sure. isn't it? I mean, I, I, the people who use the word millennials most are, most frequently are, are, are marketers, I, Right, I, I and find. I should and say that is why the title was chosen. Well, that was not yeah, my no, choice. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that is so something that is a, a term that people understand, I guess, in the West more than some of the other terms I jerked around, uh, like Dausa, that wouldn't quite work. No, is no. <laughs> Penis hair. The, 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 the <laughs> yeah, the Chinese words didn't quite work. So Jolin Ho... And, uh, and then mid-balling hose in there too, right? Right. Bunch of hose. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually on holiday, like I said, and then thrust suddenly back into work. So I confess I haven't had a chance to revisit your book since the early draft I saw of it, which I think was like late last year, um, you know, w- which I did read. What um, It hasn't really changed, apparently. I, I glanced through it last night. It mm. hasn't really changed too much in its major outline. Um, and I think it's it's interesting the way that, Eric, uh, you've you've – you've uh, approached the topic by looking at kind of four broad categories that are very basic to people who are kind of in their 20s. So education, uh, work, kind of category of kind of life, love, meaning of it all, spirituality section that you call coping, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I mean, that, that also includes, of course, a very interesting discussion about religiosity, which I think we'll get to. And a final section called pushing back about, well, pushing back about through you know <laughs> activism through like you know environmental activism specifically also through that nefarious dark art journalism right? <laughs> uh cool uh, uh that that's a good structure um and i think maybe we'll use that structure kind of to yeah to, to I, why don't we take it one through, by yeah, one one by one so, but first before we do that i just want to ask you one question like what compelled you to write on the millennials do you feel like there's been some narrative that's hardened out there in the world when it comes to young people i mean you mentioned the entitlement um, thing the, the the little emperors thing uh, uh, is there something out there else that you, you feel obliged to correct? Yeah, like, and that kind of goes to why I structured the book in those four sections. Again, I think kind of the narrative uh, post nineteen eighty nine China's economy took off, and at the same time, this sort of patriotic education was introduced in China. Uh, so I think uh, a lot of the coverage in foreign media, and we especially saw this last year on the 25th anniversary of Tiananmen, is that the generation that came of age after that time has grown up very spoiled, materialistic on one hand, and on the other hand, very nationalistic and not really uh, too keen to push things politically, not, uh, or, or more or less they're politically apathetic, I think has been the, the stereotype for a while. Um, and when I when I moved to China in 2007, there's definitely a lot of validity to that narrative still. I mean, those are definitely aspects that are important to understand in China. But I think it's a gross oversimplification to leave it at that. Um, just the young people I was talking to over the years, and this started to become more and more acute, I felt, as the years go, went on into the early 2010, is that this group, I think both of those things, that it's they're materialistic and content and that they're nationalistic and not willing to push uh, social change, a little bit problematic. Uh, so these are the why I chose these sections of the book, because these are some of the things youth today are really struggling with, the education system, the workforce, all these crazy social issues that have taken shape. Uh, and then we're seeing, on the other hand, youth starting to push back against the status quo in many ways, in mm. some ways non-political, in some ways that are becoming very political. Is, is this narrative something that you think has come from the foreign media, or is it something that it was emerged really on in the, in the Chinese media and has been sort of adopted, unexamined, and unchallenged by foreign media? I think the materialistic aspect and that this generation has been brought up spoiled, I think that came from domestically in China. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that in Chinese media a lot, too. And, of course, it's usually the previous generation writing about the younger generation. Well, uh, I mean, it is kind of <laughs> hard if you grew up eating tree bark. Sure. <laughs> and I mean, Look at your grandchildren. You showered with candy and not feel that, right? Wow, I, mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do a lot of that when I was your age. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, you cannot compare head-on like people who grew up in the 80s or even people that grew up under Mao to people that grew up today. It's just totally different worlds. But I think 
there are a lot of very unique challenges this generation is facing that they maybe don't get as much credit for either domestically or in foreign audiences. Um, but going back to your question, the, the nationalistic aspect and how they've been kind of subdued away from politics, uh, I think this has been really emphasized uh, in foreign media. And I think it would like the big time this was explored was last year, the Tiananmen yeah, anniversary, Tiananmen. like people talk to young people. And this was the conclusion that I think a lot of people brought is, well, they've been brought up well off. Well, there's that standard thing where you, <laughs> you walk up to a college student with a picture of Tank Man and then you can, right. yeah, I, I'm not going to name any names, but I mean, I know, yeah. we all know who we're talking about. <laughs> I think yeah, that's a very cliche and very misleading, shallow way to gauge the political, uh, outlook of Chinese youth. But I've, yeah. I've, I've actually asked a bunch of my, my friend, my Chinese friends, you know, so, you know, some of them have had foreign media walk up to them with a picture of Tank Man. And um, I say, you know, what, what, what's your reaction to this? Or, you, you know, I mean, they're like, you know, there isn't anybody who doesn't know what that is or what it represents. So, sure, you, there are going to be a couple of people. But there are lots of people who are going to avoid an uncomfortable conversation just by, by shaking their head and saying no, because that gets you out of it right away. <laughs> right. And, yeah, there was, like, people that went in San Lee Twin, like, uh, foreign media with this picture, and then they got detained. And, like, that kind of gave an idea of the atmosphere. I mean, if you're a young Chinese and some Lao I come up with a video camera in your face in this area that's policed by... Right. <laughs> and, of course, you're not going to give a deep... <laughs> introspective answer but right, right. yeah well that I mean. says something too <laughs> yeah. anyway um let's jump in with education um i mean because you know this again this this does relate to Tiananmen and, and as does everything right uh you open your book with this chapter about the obligatory military training that matriculating freshmen have to undergo and have had to undergo ever since 1989 um talk to our listeners a little bit about that choice was there something about times and this generation's shared experiences that you think that this this particular experience they all have to go this ordeal yeah chapters yeah so this military training that uh, college students do for about the first two to three weeks uh, when they're college freshmen uh, it actually started before uh, 1989 but it was after 89 that it was really formalized and expanded to kind of a unified uh, okay. national okay. system yeah. and i mean if you look at the way it's done it's kind of like boot camp and like armies. Uh, yeah, I remember most, you talked to an army officer it, about uh, a marine or something. Right, like and like it's like repetitive drills. If you step out of line, you get punished. And I mean, like everybody I talked to and like the research I did, kind of the idea of this is to condition you to obey orders and kind of conform. And the Ministry of Education is quite uh, straightforward in saying it's meant to temper students' willpowers, make them more collectivist. Uh, so it does really seem to be intended to be an exercise in obeying authority and kind of conforming uh, to one another. Uh, but that's not really the way it works so much anymore. They still definitely do all these things. Uh, and there's technically rules, like you can't have any sort of individualistic fashion statements like painted fingernails or makeup for girls or long hair for guys. Uh, but, yeah, but you like if you look at this military training pretty much anywhere, people just make a mockery of this. I mean, people are wearing... Uh, these individualistic fashion statements. They kind of goof off during the training, take these funny pictures. There was one of two people in their army fatigues making out that was lambasted on national TV. <laughs> and I think that this was kind of an interesting metaphor. Yeah, I talked to a PLA lieutenant who had run this training twice, and he said, like, yeah, post-90s kids today, they're just crazy. They ask why so much more when we give them orders. And it was funny because this PLA lieutenant was 25 years old talking about 18-year-olds. Yeah, <laughs> talking about kids these days. Right. I think it's a good metaphor for the kind of precarious relationship between Chinese youth and the state pushing back, uh, not so directly, uh, but kind of resisting the kind of conformity and strict obedience to authority. And I think it shows kind of longing for more individualism, too, that you see them acting out in this way and refusing to just be completely conformist throughout it. It reminds me of when I was growing up in apartheid South Africa, we had this thing called Felt School, which basically means like Bush School, which was a week of... Like Velt, kind of like V-E-L-D-T? Yeah. Okay. Um, like out on the Velt? Yeah, <laughs> Felt, we say, bro. Come on, get your pronunciation right. But uh, <laughs> it was quite similar, at least uh, my school, you know, we were supposed to be listening to lectures about 
total onslaught, which was the theory that South Africa was being completely surrounded by, you know, evil communists and things, and, you know, the West was against us, and we had to be strong, and, uh, you know, then kind of militaristic training. Uh, and we just basically took the piss. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> at some level, that's just very human. People who have enough space in this society to be individuals will just act up like that, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't remember the damn name of the show right now, but there's a, a, pop, a very popular new reality show right now in China uh, that takes these, these you know, young actors and puts them in the PLA, puts, you know, puts them through training. I mean, they're... You know they they have they fuck up and they have to do twenty five push ups and they they have to run constantly and these are like well known quite handsome actors they had to shave they, they you know shave with like a dry razor and no no foam uh, it was it was it's crazy. Ooh, yeah. the horror <laughs> that's a really terrible trial it, it is I've had to do that it's not it's not fun uh, no but I'm uh, they're driving tanks and it's 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 apparently hugely popular and I, I don't know if this is sort of part of the same program to kind of mm. they. Uh, some people mentioned that that is part of the the goal of this military training is to elicit sympathy for the PLA. Like they'll have kind of fireside chats and talk about the sacrifices of the PLA soldiers. And like if you look back at like how it expanded after '89, the PLA took a big hit to its image. So it does appear to be one yeah. secondary goal. So this is sort of like part political indoctrination, part kind of company team building exercise stretch yeah out, and i should summer, say like summer camp and and like the, the instructors and i think the system as a whole is kind of surrendered to this fact that kids aren't as obedient as they used to after the first couple of days of shock and awe like uh punishment and like running laps and it seems to die down quite a bit and the officers become more like camp counselors to the kids and by the end like the vast majority of people i talked to remembered it very positively huh. uh, so yeah i don't know <laughs> Uh, the next chapter that you looked at was about the Gaokao. And I, I, just maybe quickly, Jeremy, what's the Gaokao? So that, it's you know, the, co- the, uh, the high school matriculation examination. So the seniors the, in high the, school take it. Take it, and the score on the Gaokao will decide which university you go to, essentially. Right. And basically everything in, in the many years, all the way basically from the beginning of school, um, is geared toward this thing, right? So in many ways, I think it kind of epitomizes the traditional pedagogical system in China, right? Where you are not allowed to do anything except study for, you know, from the age of about 12, I guess. Mm. <laughs> it's a grueling ordeal at the Gaokao. I mean, it's 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 a long-ass test, right? Yeah, long and a lot of rote learning. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, your, your chapter on that, um, what did you, what, what, what did you come away with, um, you know, learning about, you know, how you, you talk to high school students, um, I can't remember the, the one girl in particular who you focused on, mm-hmm. um, what, what her name was, but. Emily yeah. Fong. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, so uh, about her whole or- ordeal, you know, leading up to it, what, what can you tell us about, you know, what does the ordinary student experience in, in, in the lead up to this thing? I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty awful. And the closer you get to it, the more intense it becomes. Uh, so this girl I was following, uh, like I talked to her over the years from when she was 14 to when she was 18 and took it. And just every time I saw her, she was kind of more put out and exasperated. And uh, about six months before she actually took it, I stayed with her family. And she was just, she went to class, I think it was like seven in the morning till 10 at night uh, with, with a two hour lunch in between where she just like, ate and crashed uh <laughs> but yeah and she like every day she came back she was just like so irritated so put out and uh there was one night where her family left and she just kind of buried her face in my shoulder and started sobbing and like saying they want so much from me and i'm afraid that if i failed then like the whole family will be disappointed in me and there was i mean that was a legitimate concern i mean the family was putting a lot of their hopes on her um yeah, it was just a, a brutal time and she ended up uh she took it and she didn't get as high of a score as she wanted to. So she ended up uh, taking another year to take it a second time, studying a full year. Um, and that that was interesting, too, because she was from a pretty well-to-do middle-class family. Uh, so she had this luxury that they could support her while she studied another year. Where was she? In Nanjing or in uh, Shandong? Oh, Shandong. Uh, I okay. guess uh, third-tier Shandong city. Okay, right. Xinzhou. Um, this opened up an aspect that I hadn't appreciated before, uh, how this system really disadvantages rural people. And in the second half of that chapter, I tracked down these uh, three guys that had been taken in, in an education scam. Uh, they were from rural Henan, and they had uh, failed the Gaokao, and they were kind of, they had accepted their fate, like they were uh, kids of farmers in Henan. 
they kind of accepted like, yeah, we're just going to have to get some labor work. And these recruiters came to their school who they'd later figured out had paid off the administrators to give their contact information. And they thought, oh, great, we can go to this four-year school and still get a degree. But it turned out the whole thing was a scam. It wasted months of their lives. And This is the first were, time I've ever heard of a scam related to Henan province. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as your ancestral homeland, obviously, right. well, these well-known for its <laughs> lack of cheats and frauds and right. scams. The scammers were actually from Shandong in this, in this case. And the uh, scammies were Henan. But yeah, this really kind of drove home. And then after that, they had, like thrown all their money into it and their parents couldn't afford for them to study another year and they actually never had the heart to tell their parents they'd been scammed they just started working and kind of held they clung to this hope that they would be able to pass the gaokao and one guy had taken it four times by the oh, time geez. i spoke with him and it was just and i asked him like well you know the uh, white like a college degree isn't worth what it used to be like why don't you just kind of cut your losses and like get a technical education he said I thought about that, but my friend said, well, your parents save for you to go to college. I mean, it'll be a huge letdown if you don't get in. So like, I, I have to work and like try to get in and try to meet their standards. So yeah, uh, it's just all these. It's this, <laughs> this new civil service examination system. And so this guy failing four times, you know, the third time, actually some missionary handed him a piece of Protestant literature. He came back after failing the fourth time, fell into a deep coma, woke up from it, having had a dream that he was the son of, of God and the brother of Christ and launched a millenary and uprising and conquered <laughs> all, all, all. Right. we've heard this story before. I, I either watch put that guy on a watch list <laughs> um, yeah so you know at, at university once you've passed the, this 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 horrible gaokao uh, and you've you've actually made it into a school and once you've endured your three weeks of military training you're actually you know at school and uh, then you're subjected of course to a little bit more political education, and uh, you you write a chapter about that too, and about the kind of again quite sort of cynical attitudes that people have toward toward this. How how I mean, surely there must be awareness of of the the, the lack of seriousness with which they take this political indoctrination, um, you know, party history and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so when they get to university, they they continue these classes in like Marxism, Deng Xiaoping theory, modern Chinese history, morality, all very much intended to give the communist uh, party uh, uh, position on things. Um, and, but it, that was kind of weird because almost all the students I talked to just kind of laughed off this idea when I talked to them about it. Like uh, the teachers don't even try to, uh, in most cases, teach them that the subject matter is true. Like. Uh, one test question I, I saw that I love, like, explain the Communist Party, like, like revolution is like, oh, the inevitable course for China or the uh, agreed upon path of all ethnicities. And like, and then every answer is correct. So it's just like very, very over the top, like obvious propaganda. And the teachers kind of, most people told me just approach it, teaching them how to pass the test, not necessarily that the subject matter is true. And this is how most students kind of tended to see it as just uh, an unfortunate fact of life that they have to go through. Uh, one thing I found interesting was like uh, when I was teaching 2007, 2008, when I asked students about this, they said, yeah, it's stupid. I don't need it. Uh, but it's necessary for the harmony of the entire country. Uh, if we didn't have this, then maybe people wouldn't support our leaders and it would be chaos. Uh, but over the years, but I started... don't, don't they look around them and they see <laughs> that everyone has the same sort of cynical attitude. And so how could this possibly be achieving that goal? Well, when they look around them in university, sure. But I think uh, there's kind of a, uh, like looking at the Lao Baixing, the, the common people and saying, well, if they don't support the leaders, then we would collapse. So we need no. to have this sort of education. Uh, but I started hearing that less and less over the coming years, like after Weibo started taking off and uh, like these micro blogs uh, got big and started kind of exposing all this stuff in China that I think a lot of people didn't really appreciate before. So I think like even the defense of this education, while I don't think uh, allegiance to it was very strong to begin with, I think even the defense of it now is starting to subside. But don't you think that when talking about, you know, politics and the educational system in China, it's not so much what is taught as, as what is not taught. I mean, uh, I, in the sense of, I mean, you sometimes find, or you frequently find like, for example, genuine surprise uh, amongst uh, Chinese people who haven't been exposed to a lot of foreign media that anybody could doubt like the nine dash line or, or China's territorial claims that there is 
is in fact another argument is not even considered. And I think part of the problem there, or maybe it's not a problem if you're the Communist Party, is that people just haven't been exposed to a different way of thinking, or of course, you know, the idea of critical thinking. It's not the Marxist propaganda that everybody knows is bullshit from, you know, the most humble peasant to Xi Jinping. It's, it's, it's the stuff that's left out. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you should read this because the the the, part, the the stuff that doesn't seem to be pushed back on quite as hard is is the kind of irredentist claims, the the the, the hardcore nationalist stuff. The Tibet was, is, and always shall be a part of China. That 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 sort of thing. That's that's never in question, right? No, yeah, I think that stuff sells pretty well, and I, I think that I mean even goes before this patriotic education that was launched in 1991. I think. Yeah, this sort of nationalistic education, China's territorial claims and that sort of thing does tend to sell well, um, more so than, I don't know, some of the other. And, and why do you think they don't subject that to the same sort of cynicism? I, I think that's pretty common to, I, I mean, in, in most countries to kind of cheerlead your, your own uh, yeah, nation's I'm, position. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think this kind of mindset's been there for, for a long time. And yeah, when there is nothing that really challenges it, I mean, Jeremy is absolutely right. When there's nothing to challenge this, uh, I mean, you have other political issues in China that people can challenge uh, one another on, but I mean, not a lot of people are going to bring up, oh, well, maybe the South China Sea doesn't belong to us in its entirety. Right, right, right. So, maybe the <laughs> Japanese have a case for the Senkaku right. Islands, right? That's not going to, that's not going to come up. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's move on and talk about the economic outlook for millennials. Um, I guess my, my main question is, do you think that uh, there are parallels between China's millennials and their U.S. counterparts, many of whom were also the first generation in a while, not to be confident that they're going to be better off economically mm. than their parents? Yeah, I mean, China has a lot of these same issues, like wealth inequality uh, getting wider in China, and that kind of, there seems to be a feeling among a lot of young Chinese that they missed the boat. Like, early in the reform period, if you were smart, capable, you had a business idea, uh, you could probably make money. You could probably make a name for yourself and get rich. Or like if you passed the college entrance exam and got into a top university, you could leverage that, get a great job. Uh, but there seems to be a feeling that that is passing. And I mean, the the economic statistics bear that out, uh, that this is becoming a much harder time uh, for young Chinese. Uh, I mean, every year the statistics just came out again this year. Once again, there were like a quarter million more college graduates than last year and 20 to 30% fewer jobs. That's the case every year. So I think, yeah, this this very pessimistic outlook about uh, job pr- prospects and their position in the economy, I think, is similar to America, but I think at the same time has a magnifying glass over it in China. I think these issues are much more acute here. And so many of these people end up joining the fabled ant tribe. Talk, tell, tell us what the ant tribes are. Jeremy, you, you've, you've, you've experienced or you have some, some familiarity I've lived with amongst the ant tribe. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the ant tribes are college graduates that are in major cities and like the big ant colonies are in Beijing and Shanghai. And these are people who've got university degrees which have devalued uh, very much uh, since their peak... Uh, in the past. So when they graduate, they find that my college degree doesn't get me anything, but they still persist in cities doing like uh, dubious internships or like dubious sales jobs where they work on commission and basically get nothing and work, live in these dank, um, well, there's the, around, the yeah. ant tribes, where they live far outside the cities. Uh, and then the, the rat tribes where they live in like bomb shelters or, uh, apartment complex basements, uh, really poor conditions, but they kind of persist there with this conviction that they can do better, that they can get the white collar work that they were kind of promised as a kid that if they worked hard and got a college degree, they could get, but they're finding that's not really the case anymore. What's being done to address this? Surely there's, there's, there's got to be, I mean, awareness that these people, you know, they're in the large cities. They are fundamentally discontent. They are, you know, members of the intellectual class by virtue of having college degrees, these are, you know, a potentially marginalized, radicalized faction, right? I mean, shouldn't mm. shouldn't we be? I mean, as 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 um, the Chinese leadership, shouldn't they be really concerned about this? Yeah, and I, they have done a couple things to address like symptoms of like these uh, disenfranchised uh, young people living together. Like there was this big ant tribe community in Beijing called Tan. Uh, I, 
you say Tang Jialing, yeah. uh, and it was uh, torn down. Like after all these media reports started talking about these tens of thousands of ant uh, young people living there, they tore them down and you know, they were uh, forced to uh, disperse. Uh, that's going to help. Yeah, that didn't. <laughs> well, it is actually if you're going to prevent a riot. The right. communists know what they're doing. <laughs> right. But I think they're trying to uh, persuade more people to get into more technical things because there is huge demand for skilled trades, uh, like uh, technical vocational schools. But still, a lot of people have this idea of like the, the guy who was scammed from Hunan that they're dead set on getting a four-year university degree, uh, not only because they think that'll bring huge opportunities, but because it's kind of a matter of face. And it's where all the liberal <laughs> arts students end up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, what, what kinds of anxieties do young Chinese people face these days? I mean, sure, housing must be a big issue. I mean, I, I you know, as a longtime renter, I know the the games. It's fixed. It's the whole thing is rigged. I mean, whether it's the U.S. or in China, I mean, once you you've gotten the money to put together to buy a place, life is very different, right? You're on the other side, but when you're lo- like you know, when you're still struggling, living in a shoebox on the Upper East Side. <laughs> <laughs> Before you own real property, it, it's the game's rigged. I mean, uh, the, surely this must be a, a source of tremendous anxiety for them. I mean, their parents all were sort of given their Danway housing and having, you know, they were they, they bought it on pennies on the dollar and were able to flip it and then flip again, and, and all, that's why everyone. And I mean, at, you know, there's the the the, uh, the, the uh, getting married right is uh, with the housing is a big deal. Sure, I mean, yeah. When I was first in China, no, you know, this wasn't a thing. And within five years, suddenly, when commercial you real estate to... opened, you had to have a house if you were a young man in search of a wife. Mm. was the first time I heard it, and I think you know, you have a car, a house, and your, a monthly, sa- your salary, monthly salary yeah. in excess of ten thousand yuan. Otherwise, you can't get a wife. Mm. Is that? factor yeah for sure i think that's one place where this like wealth inequality is very acutely felt when you see like rich people and corrupt officials buying houses by the dozen and like, young people can't even afford one um and it's some cities it's just insane like 20 years of income to buy a home and yeah i think a lot of people do see this as sort of a baseline of adequacy and after you've bought a home you're in the middle class now you have this this status so it does become kind of an all-consuming effort, especially if you're a young man, uh, because there is this idea that you have to have a house to have a wife, and now you have this uh, incredible gender imbalance that gets worse by a million excess men every year. Uh, so this is definitely one one big anxiety to, uh, am I going to be able to earn enough? Am I going to be able to find my place in China? Is it reasonable, though, for people? I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, Jeremy. I mean, is it in what fucking world do... 26-year-olds, three years out of college, own homes. In China, when daddy... When, when dad buys you money, gave money you a house, house. I mean... Right, but but no, be, before that, though, I mean, or, or, or in the States, you know, what what recent college graduate, unless they've, you know, like gone straight to Goldman or to, to, you know, BCG or to some consulting firm, who buys property within, like, a couple of years out of college? Yeah, but, you know, the States has had a tradition of, you know, when you're 18, you leave home and fend for yourself for a lot longer than China has. I mean, China still doesn't really have that right. tradition. I mean, you're not just marrying the guy, you're marrying his his family, right? And, and there is this perceived stability that having a home uh, presents. For a long time, that was seen as the only, like, reliable investment. Uh, of course, stock market's doing crazy things now, but uh, for for a long time, that was... You buy a house if you want your wealth to increase. So people see that, okay, we bought a house, now we're somewhat stable. And then you have this very unique Chinese problem as well of uh, having this tremendous gender imbalance. Right. Um, and there, there have been studies that have shown that uh, with the increase in the gender imbalance, it raises real estate prices because uh, men and their families feel like, yeah, we need to buy a house to, to be, to be an suitable on the yeah, uh, marriage suitor. market. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on yeah, so that's one way in which it's it's whole, you know the, the 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 gender imbalance is playing out. Um, what are some other ways? I mean, is it? I, I've always had this sort of optimistic and hopeful, um, hopeful uh, idea that 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 the one-child policy and the gender imbalance so produced was going to be a good thing for women in the, in the long run. That they'll have a choice. They don't have to marry the asshole. They don't have to marry. I mean, they, they have a little. Um, they're, they're, you know, more people you know who uh they, they, you know women have some some more power in this now is that not the case i mean i 
am I just dreaming here? Yeah, there are some people who look at it that way, but I I think most uh, experts would not feel that way. Amara Vistendahl did a really good book on natural selection that explores this question uh, of how the women are uh, being treated in in this uh, new landscape of such a huge male population. Uh, But a lot of the side effects are that women are becoming more commoditized and seeing, uh, well, I mean, it makes marriage more of a market Mm-hmm. Uh, oriented thing if you if you look at it that way like I can choose the richest suitor um, and you see the crime rate going up too there's been studies that have linked this too with each uh, I think the number is each 1% rise in the gender imbalance in China has led to a 3.7% rise in the crime rate Lordy. Uh, so you see human trafficking uh, going up you see rape going up you see all these very <laughs> horrible things uh, with women as the victims uh, going on the upswing that was a chapter i too i explored is how uh young women are faring uh in the society and in a lot of ways it's becoming a little bit scary and a little bit i don't know it's hard to say that women haven't progressed in absolute terms but relative to men i think women are falling further behind um just just before we leave off economics here uh what, what about spending and saving um my understanding is that you know, people in, say, my generation, uh, and I, I mean, I know this to be true anecdotally at least, and, and I mean, the, the, the stats show it too. People save a lot, right? I mean, mm. some people have all sorts of speculations as to why it is the lack of a social safety net or whatever. They feel like they need to squirrel away money in the mattress or in the savings account, even if it's not yielding much interest. But, you know, 30 up to 40% of, of, of their take home, they're, they're, they're putting into savings. Not so with the millennials, I'm given to understand. I, I'm, I'm told that it's comparable to the U.S. in some mm. cities, you know, even negative savings rates where they're, they're generally indebted. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I don't know the exact numbers, but I think that you're right that young people are saving much less than older generations. I don't think that's terribly surprising. I mean, that's the same with me versus my grandparents who grew up amid the Great Depression. Right. I mean, if you grew up in Mao's China, then you tuck away <laughs> when you can because you don't know how long this stability is going to last but yeah young people didn't grow up with that like that memory of hardship i guess that they've grown up being trained to consume just like americans really yeah well so. that's what they want now right i mean that's called the rebalancing right? yeah. yeah one chapter that i don't you know remember all the details on uh is about religiosity in china uh are you basically okay with this whole kind of description that you see about china? i mean we've done a show kind of about this, about China as a, as a spiritual vacuum, as mm. the, the, there's there's a crisis, um, whether you want to call it sort of moral or ethical or uh, you know the trust deficit or or just simply you know a, a, a falling off of belief in anything, uh, is that a cliche that needs correction or is that is that consistent with what you? you no, observed? I think that that's pretty been well uh, established. That, that yeah, uh, yeah. Is what's called like the po- post-communist personality. At, like when the socialist economy collapsed, kind of the socialist moral order went with it, and there was nothing to replace it uh, but consumption and uh, materialism. So there, uh, again, there is validity to this Wang to, Qian Kai, right? <laughs> to the stereotype, um, and it's I think particularly acute with young people now. There was just a report last week that found there's more young people that are religious than old people in China. Uh, which goes against uh, most of the developed world where the elderly are more religious, mm-hmm. the young are becoming less so. Uh, and this didn't really surprise me. Um, I, I talked to a lot of, I focused on Christian converts, but there was all sorts of spiritual endeavors with this generation and a lot of different reasons. Some you might expect more than others. Um, so like people that grew up with these kind of tectonic social uh, transformations, yeah. uh, some said, like, I just can't relate to my family and my parents. When I went to church, it gave me this sense of community. It gave me people that uh, can understand me, give me unconditional love. Um, and like one guy I talked to, he like was so primed for something to believe in. He just saw Forrest Gump. And when uh, John Lennon was on Dick Cavett talking about uh, uh, the Christians in China, like Forrest Gump had talked about going to China and they had no faith. Uh, John Lennon's like, oh, it's hard to imagine. And this guy that I talked to had seen that scene, and he's like, oh, it's kind of weird that uh, uh, foreigners think that that's weird that Chinese don't have religion. So he went to a church to see what it was all about, and then he was pretty much sold after that. It's like, 
just something so simple knocked over the first domino. Um, but it's yeah. not, yeah, I don't think one should look at it through, you know, your um, atheist uh, way of thinking. It's an emotional response, isn't it, to mm. a community. It's not so much a, a, a belief of, you know, they're not going in there and thinking, do I think this is a logical thing to believe in? You go to church and suddenly there's a bunch of people who are nice to you, which is mm. quite difficult to find in China. Uh, not only that, like the the girl that kind of left the biggest impression on me uh, was this college student who had this great family, a great middle class upbringing. So I asked her, like, what, what made you go to church? She said, like, yeah, it was comfortable. But then, like, after all this, uh, I kind of felt like my heart was empty and I, I needed something more. Mm-hmm. And this was like a huge theme that I noticed in young people. And that was, again, part of the want generation subtitle is wanting something more out of life. Because I think when like the economic boom started in China, the growing economy did pacify a lot of people and they were happy uh, to be making money and didn't need much else. But I think now that you have this generation that kind of grew up amidst that, they're looking for more. Some found it in religion, uh, some found it in other sort of spiritual things like travel and like there's a lot of Chinese navel gazers now that uh, young people in the West are famous for, like doing volunteer work, environmentalism or activism. Uh, just all sorts of things young people are wanting to find some kind of higher meaning in. Some of them are having activities in Uniqlo. Change <laughs> right, that's one way to fill the void as well. <laughs> as it were. Premarital sex is definitely on the uh, upswing. Uh, so, uh, the survey well, before we go on, sorry, while we're talking about sex, um, you know, you, you say you, you know they're getting you know premarital mar- marital sex is becoming uh, more common. I mean, could you talk a little bit about uh, yeah, 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 th- this yeah. generation's adi- attitude towards sex? Because certainly things have changed a hell of a lot since the eighties and nineties, where mm. it's still quite a very puritanical society in many ways. Sure, Eric's yeah, that's blushing by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sex, huh? but. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like, this generation is uh, notorious for that being much more open and westernized, as, as a lot of older Chinese will put it. Yeah, uh, incorrectly. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of things contributing to that. Of course, people are exposed to much more information uh, than they were in the past in like, foreign movies and the internet where sex is right out there in the open, whereas people didn't really know a lot about it in the 80s and 90s. Um, and then you also had like the Donway collapsed, uh, which these work units that lorded over people and had a lot of control over their personal lives. And like in the 80s, they even had uh, like the period police, uh, like they would check women's menstruation cycle to make sure they weren't pregnant. So very invasive mm-hmm. about people's sex lives. Uh, and then that sort of collapsed when the private economy exploded. So now young people don't really have this concept of big brother lording over them and into their personal lives so these are a couple things but i I think that's generally the trend in most countries as society progresses becomes more open sexually yeah i mean i've always just sort of thought of it as the the compressed spring that that you know that the combination of confucian and communist prudishness over god god knows how long i'm just sort of just crushed down Chinese sexuality for so very long that once released, it was gonna, you know, sp- it was gonna spring out, you know, and we're seeing that manifestation. <laughs> that <now>. metaphor is <laughs> doing, <out>. <laughs> it's doing nothing for you. Okay, right. I kind of noticed this too with my students, like when they would come in as freshmen, the boys and girls would sit on opposite sides of the room because, like, there had been really no dating to speak of uh, when they uh-huh. were preparing for the gal cow, but then within a year, they're hanging all over each other and quite <laughs> anxiously jump into. Uh, sex lives yeah <laughs> how old are are, are are people getting sexually active among the young in china today i mean is it like like america 15 16 or is this is it still slightly older in china i think it is slightly older still i would have i don't know the exact numbers but yeah i think it's okay because i have a 11 year old daughter i'm very <laughs> but yeah it's definitely not like in the 20s like it used to be i think it's in the, in the teens or the 30s like <laughs> I remember meeting my share of, you know, 26, 27-year-old virgins back in, in the day, right? Jeremy, you too? Right? Yeah. I do remember once that in 1990, the premarital sex rate was 15%, and now it's 70%, I believe. Only 70% still. Yeah, this was a couple of years ago, okay, that okay. number, so it's probably yeah, a little yeah. bit higher now. Okay. 
Anyway, um, you conclude uh, w- with uh, this this chapter that I, like, it's called "Pushing Back" or a section called "Pushing Back," where you, you look at activism of all sorts. You look at, at environmental activism. You look at political activism. And you look specifically at uh, you know uh, in, in other way things too. You know, movements, uh, environmental or, or volunteerism, right? Um, quite political events like the the twenty thirteen Southern Weekend protests mm-hmm. over the op-ed on constitutionalism, which we talked about on this podcast. Um, how would you characterize the differences or maybe the similarities between people, you know, my age, people born in the mid-late 60s, the early 70s, the Tiananmen generation, and uh, the millennials these days? Yeah, I think the comparison between these two generations, the Tiananmen generation and, and kids today, tends to be oversimplified. I think we tend to lionize the Tiananmen protesters as like brave, willing to lay down their lives for democracy. And again, this generation is politically apathetic. I think both of those are problematic. Um, I don't see it like, like the Tiananmen generation, I think, wasn't as gung ho for democracy as we think of it, um, as they tend to be remembered. I mean, they had all these grievances about corruption, um, nepotism, the difficulty in the job market, uh, like media freedom. And I think a lot of these are similar to what kids today uh, in China are starting to be concerned but is, more isn't about... isn't the difference, it's not the democracy. I mean, uh, that's definitely not the case. Isn't the difference that they went on the streets and people are saying, well, w- you know, why aren't they going to the barricades kind of thing? Sure. Isn't that the question? Yeah, well, I think the big difference, I mean, they have gone on the streets, like the Southern Weekend thing, I think blindsided a lot of people when uh, a lot of young people did take to the streets to push for this kind of, uh, this concept of freedom of press, which is much more... Uh, abstract than the typical things that cause these mass incidents like land grabs and things that have a direct influence on people's lives. Uh, so yeah, people have taken the streets. I think the big difference was is that the the Communist Party has gotten quite uh, effective and quite efficient at stopping people from having these large demonstrations, which in 1989, a lot of stars aligned that got people uh, out onto the streets um, in a way that they haven't aligned since. Um, so I think that's kind of a superficial thing that we haven't seen as many street demonstrations, but I think young people are becoming uh, much more interested in these kind of issues that were raised in 89 than uh, young people 10 years ago. I think Southern Weekend is a big manifestation of this. And that people are willing to stick their necks out for mm. loftier ideals. Yeah, I was also impressed in 08 uh, with the, the, the level of volunteerism that I saw after the Wintuan earthquake. After the earthquake, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and that, that sort of... I think it surprised a lot of people. Um, they expected more apathy, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's good. To, I mean, that's a, a happy note maybe to 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 start wrapping on. Uh, the book is uh, China's Millennials, the Want Generation. Let me remind everybody that we have in our ha- possession a signed copy, which I will happily quite out or to email out to or no, not email out, just to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna send everybody my, my my secret PDF version of the book, the one with the typos and stuff. Uh, um, yeah, I'm happy to get this one out um, to the person who sends me the best list of five favorite Seneca episodes over the last five years. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a very self-serving <laughs> it, it is. task. Like, up, guys, all uh, you need to do is stroke my vanity happily. And, uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, the I'm, secret. I'm, no, no, there's, there's a reason for this. I mean, I, I want to know, you know, what we're doing right. When, oh, okay. You know, so, so, like, you know, what you guys want more of, and um, we exist to serve. All right. Uh, so, let us now move to recommendations for the week, and uh, I want to start... With my buddy Jeremy here. All right. Well, I uh, a few episodes ago, I asked for recommendations for children's books uh, on the show, and some some listeners uh, e- uh, emailed me some. And thank you very much to all of you. And one recommendation I'd like to make is something completely new to me, which is uh, Uncle Goose's Chinese character blocks, uh, which uh, Charles Hoover, thank you, Charles, uh, recommended to me. And they're actually made right here in the USA. It's wood blocks, kind of you know, kids' old-fashioned traditional wooden playing blocks and they have Chinese characters on them with pinyin and pictures and they're just really a lot of fun for small kids and to kind of encourage them to think Chinese is fun as opposed to most of the materials out there which seem designed to uh, give children the idea that Chinese is very boring. So the, what's the state right now? I mean, you guys are uh, have been here. Um, I, I've, I've so many friends here who have their kids in these 
bilingual immersion schools. Um, this is the Bay Area, of course. It's different. You're in New York, where I, I hear that everyone in the West, Upper West Side has a Chinese nanny. Is this true? I don't know if I heard that, but okay. it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't have one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Someday, <laughs> Jeremy, what are you saying? Any, is that is in national? There, there are no Chinese language immersion schools yet. Okay, um, maybe it's but it's coming. <laughs> we do have a f- quite a few of those. In, in it's astonishing how many Beijing people are here in the Bay Area. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's really just crazy. I mean, yeah, Duncan Clark, who lives across the street from me, or uh, uh, in the same apartment complex, he calls it Beijing. Like B A Y J right or the Greater Bay B E I area right yeah That's yeah. Cute. yeah no that, so, this does seem to be the logical place for Beijing refugees so I want to recommend um, the the new Beijing to San Jose direct flight on Hainan Airlines it's a seven eighty seven the Dreamliner um, the it's you know great service a very comfortable flight and it's directly to San Jose. Which is like an easy airport to get in and out of, and it's in it's, it's you know minutes from downtown San Jose. It's it's, and it's close to you know to, to all Silicon Valley cities. It's just a great flight. I mean, I, I think I have a feeling I'm going to be on that an awful lot in in the future. Um, yeah, Hainan Airlines. It just opened. It just started this. Region. And Hainan Air is the only Chinese airline that kind of has upped its game somehow doesn't feel like yeah 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 you know i mean china air china eastern you know they're getting better but it's still kind of i still like air china quite a bit yeah really no. but 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 um air but china yeah, sorry that yeah. was very incorrect yeah no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna totally <laughs> hainan, hainan yeah hai hang it's 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 uh it's you know affordable and very nice flight and and i have to say you know kind of roomy uh, the the even the economy class the coach has uh, a little more leg room I'd say you know four or five centimeters more for those of you who have you know long legs so hey uh, that's <laughs> that's my weird obscure recommendation for the week Eric yeah uh, and dovetailing with the topic I'm going to rep- uh, recommend three pieces from the same author uh, Caroline Khan uh, who's a Chinese millennial writer who's uh, really come out in the last couple of months with some excellent pieces. Yeah, it's just because um, she used to date Alec Ash. <laughs> <laughs> so she was born in 1989, terrific writer. Um, the pieces are called The Unwelcome Villager, which talks about a Japanese woman who lived in her village when she was younger. My father talking about her dad taking the Galkao versus when she took it. And uh, then uh, uh, The House by the River, where she talks about her grandfather. I yeah, think I read she that just one. does a terrific job of depicting these generational um, issues uh, within her family. And she's very thoughtful in, in how she empathizes with older generations in her family. Caroline's pieces are all to be found on the Ant Hill, right? Two of them are on the Ant Hill. Uh, the Unwelcome Villager is on Roads and Kingdoms. So yeah, good to read stuff beyond uh, white middle-class guys like myself writing about China. So awesome. Some good Chinese well, At writers. least you're still <laughs> young, I reckon. <laughs> uh, at least you're not middle-aged yet. That's when you know. You know you're, you're, you're past <laughs> middle welcome. You've got a while. <laughs> Eric, man, so good to see you. Yeah, you too. And uh, let's let's uh, head off to your event now. So you guys are going to be speaking along with Xiao Chang and um, who are the other speakers? Your mom? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, Xiao Chiang, uh, Lisa Rofel, and uh, Sasha Some guy Wendlander. named <laughs> Jer- Jer- Jeremy, of course, is also going to be Jeremy on Jeremy Goldcorn. Yes, Jeremy. Main event. It's cool. It's <laughs> going to be great to, to attend a, a thing where I have, I have no role. I can just sit and heckle in the audience. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear that siren in the background? I can. Uh, yeah, I wonder yeah, if it's going to no, come through. That's a nice way to end the show. Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco <laughs> siren. Uh, <laughs> all right, music. folks. Uh, I think, yeah, we may have to skip a week, but uh, we will be back soon. And uh, happy summer. And we will see you folks next week on the Cynical or YouTube smash something like that on the Cynical Podcast. Take care. Take care.